Alex Mosad and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. It's a long battle, um, but we are, we've got a couple stories to, to lead off today, kind of showing A, how aggressive, abrasive, and abusive these tech monopolies truly um, are. And we're going to look at Facebook and some whistleblowers that have come forward to talk what Facebook did to try and prevent that uh, that law from passing in Australia, which we've covered a lot. But we've got some really interesting, juicy details. Um, and it isn't just the uh, Facebook whistleblowers in Australia that are uh, sounding the alarm on Facebook. It's also Facebook's chatbot. There's also some hilarious messages from their chatbot, which we're going to cover. We're also going to look at um, Rumble versus Google, some dirty stuff that Google's been doing to try and uh, cram down Rumble. Then, you know, do a little check-in. Let's look at a little state of the market, U.S., you know, tech valuations and where that's going. And um, what were some of the people predicting six months ago? And, uh, and how are those predictions playing out? So let's jump on in. So there's some recent articles that are coming out now. We've covered this a lot on the show, which was Australia actually creating a law uh, to classify content platform monopolies, namely Google and Facebook, to say, hey, these are dominant platform companies, aka monopolies. And because of that, if you want to share news on your site, you, monopoly, have to pay remuneration, compensation to the news and media publications in Australia. It's been wildly successful as a law forcing tech monopolies to come to the table. Uh, over $150 million have been paid in just really less than a year of the law going into effect uh, to these news publications. It's a great example of how government can uh, intervene and help level the playing field against big tech. And I was on Bloomberg and like Bloomberg Australia, basically calling um, Sundar Google's bluff that, you know, they were threatening that they were going to leave the continent of Australia, uh, which I called at the time they were not going to do. Zuckerberg, though, I think would have done it. But Google... Again, management CEO, not founder CEO with Sundar. I didn't think Sundar had it in him to truly go through with that threat was proven correctly. Google came to the table and then kind of forced Facebook's hand. But it turns out Facebook didn't stop there leading up to this, you know, face off with the Australian government. Now it's come to light that employees within Facebook say the move so the move amid the standoff with the Australian government was no accident. And what is this move they're speaking about? Well, three hours into Facebook's Australian news blackout on February 17, 2021. So Facebook said, hey, we're going to do a blackout of all news on Facebook in Australia because, hey, Australia government, right? Like you're forcing us to do this because, you know, this is what Facebook would be like if this law went into effect, right? Trying to penalize uh, the media and, and Facebook's consumers and blame it on the government, right? Sick stuff. Well, turns out Facebook didn't just ban the news publications from Facebook. Turns out the Australian news ban took down pages that are not news sources, pointing to blocked government pages 
fire and emergency services, official health pages, and domestic violence charities. Wow, Facebook, that's a really stand-up thing for you to go and do. Whistleblowers within Facebook have now come forward labeling the move a negotiating tactic in a long-running fight over the legislation that I was just talking about. So basically, Facebook deliberately blocked government uh, pages in Australia to, you know, show how powerful Facebook is and that the government shouldn't mess with the big bad tech monopoly or else. And then after employees were saying, hey, Facebook, like this isn't cool, like you're like these are like (laughs) uh, domestic violence uh, sites like Women's Legal Services service women the Women's Legal Service the WWF of Australia were not quickly restored continued to be banned Facebook knew exactly what it was doing they were trying it was retribution they were not happy with what the Australian government was doing and so now they were gonna flex their muscle and like a child you know show um, the damage that they can cause. Completely inexcusable behavior. Just another example about how how much power and too much power these tech monopolies have come to amass, where concerns and escalations internally from employees, the company is too headstrong to, to reverse course. They did it a little bit, like they restored the Bureau of Meteorology and 1-800-RESPECT, but they still left other uh, government-oriented pages blocked and, and shut down. Um, and this is exactly what we talk about on the show, which is that when these platforms become and an achieve monopolistic scale, who do they take advantage of? They take advantage of the producers, of the suppliers, right? In these instances, it's government suppliers, it's uh, domestic violence charities, it's fire and emergency services, it's uh, official, you know, government health pages. That is who is actually taken advantage of first and foremost. Yes, that has an also a trickle down effect to the end consumer, who then is also penalized. But who is penalized the most are actually the producers, the creators, uh, who are silenced off of these content platforms and have no recourse, have no intermediary that they can go to, that they can say, hey, Facebook banned me inappropriately, Google banned me inappropriately, or you know, they actually haven't banned me, they're just shadow banning me and limiting how much audience I get on the platform, right? Or this is fundamentally you know, a violation of the civil li- liberties um, that this country was founded upon, and these tech monopolies uh, have gone too far. And so when the Australian government tries just a little bit, it's like $150 million. This is between Google and Facebook that they had to spend in Australia. Okay, $150 $150 million, whoop-de-doo, right? Yet now they're going to start banning government pages just just because they can and because they're grumpy. Because some senior executive inside of there said, oh, this is ridiculous. How dare they think that... The government could tell us what to do. That's the kind of behavior. It's the kind of mindset that goes all the way to the top of the company. Um, it's sick. And ultimately, you need to force them. They are not going to do it willingly. It's clear. And then even at the, at the point where they are about to be forced, look at how they act out. Sick stuff. Childish stuff. It's not the kind of 
power and responsibility that you want to bestow uh, to these monopolies, right? They don't deserve it. Know this, right? These tech monopolies will not go down without a fight and they will play dirty. And it's not just Facebook's whistleblowers in Australia who have an issue with Zuckerberg and how the company conducts itself. It's also Facebook's own chatbot. Uh, this chatbot called Blunderbot3 was interviewed by the BBC. You know, BBC went in and started using the, the chatbot. Uh, the chatbot told BBC that Mark Zuckerberg exploits its users for money, asked the chatbot what, what it thought of the company's CEO and founder, and it replied, our country is divided, and he didn't help that at all. He did a terrible job at testifying before Congress. It makes me concerned about our country. You? That's what the chatbot said. BBC said, I want to know what you think. Then chatbot says, well, our country is divided, and he didn't help that at all. I'm concerned for us all. <laughs> chatbot's amazing. And then they say, well, any other thoughts on Zuckerberg? Chatbot goes, his company exploits people for money, and he doesn't care. It needs to stop. Are we united yet? <laughs> I mean, this is hilarious. Uh, this chatbot knows what's up. This guy has a substack, Matt Stoller. Maybe someone sent it to me. Basically talking about how Rumble just got a big win. Rumble is backed by uh, Peter Thiel and, and one of his VC funds. It's a YouTube competitor uh, with a free speech slant. So last year, Rumble sued Google, alleging a monopolization scheme by the search giant to control online video. Two weeks ago, Rumble won an important procedural dispute. And basically, Google was trying to just get the case dismissed. And the judge said, no, you know what? There's actually enough evidence here. Now I'm going to allow this case to proceed and then go into what you call discovery. That's the next stage. And now Rumble can request a bunch of documents to be produced by Google. And they'll try and slow that process down and, and, and block it and challenge it. But that's the process that they're in. It's actually a pretty big win. They have a, a long way to go, but now they could actually try and get some documents from Google to share what they were actually doing around this. And what this is, is very interesting. I didn't know about this. What the case is about is that Rumble claimed Google is using a search engine to send users to YouTube instead of Rumble. You know, if you are a phone manufacturer, an Android phone manufacturer, you can choose to have YouTube uh, pre-installed on the phone. How, how convenient. I wonder, wonder why that Google made it that easy. But when you look at what are other pre-installed apps that you could have in it, um, what Rumble is claiming is that Google and Android are prohibiting phone manufacturers from pre-installing competitive apps like Rumble also on, on the phone, right? So the phone manufacturer can easily choose to have YouTube installed, but if they were to choose other apps to be pre-installed, Google and Android are kind of actively blocking uh, other competitive video sharing sites or apps to, to be pre-installed. This is also what we talk about all the time on the show, right? Where do platforms get into trouble from an antitrust standpoint? It is when they take advantage of the producer. Um, this is what we saw in the 90s with Microsoft. What did Microsoft get in trouble for? It, was that, it wasn't that they were harming the consumer. It was that, hey, Microsoft, you were pre-installing Internet Explorer. 
and you were preventing other Netscape and other internet browsers from being installed on PCs. And you were favoring your own apps, 1P, right? First-party apps, just like Amazon Phasers favors its own first-party products, over 3P, over third-party apps, over third-party products. This is the classic trap uh, that platforms get into trouble for, right? Platforms are supposed to aggregate supply, plethora of options, and you know, one-stop shop convenience to the consumer. But then as the platform grows and it gets more mature and it gets more dominant and needs to show growth, 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 well, you know, you can't just continue to grow at insane rates on billions and billions of revenue, right? So what do they do? Oh, they want to say, well, I'm going to favor my own products over the third-party products. And your producers get harmed. And so that's what you're seeing is Google actively favoring YouTube, both on Google search and on Android, uh, over competitors. We've seen Google do this in so many other ways. We've seen Google do this, look at travel, look at airline, hotel, look at, um, uh, you know, we had uh, coverage on like that music lyric uh, website. you know, the list goes on and on and on in terms of uh, other sites that Google is just favoring its own version of the site, ripping content from other competitive sites and just repurposing it as its own and kind of putting it in, you know, right onto the search page itself. So you don't even click through and they're ripping that content from other people's sites and then just uh, putting it into their own snippets. You know, Rumble is saying that Google's a monopoly for online video activity has 73% of global online video activity through YouTube. And so that means, right, antitrust, hey, you're a monopoly, 73% market share. Hey, you are actively preventing me from using your platform, platforms rather, Google search, Android, and you're favoring your own app, your own platform, your own product called YouTube over me unfairly, right? Um, And this is actually what Google got in trouble for. So the EU did force Google to uh, try to level the playing field on choosing a default search engine. And then Google has tried to game to kind of game that and get around that. And they've, they've kind of finagled that one. Right. But there's other regulators basically outside of the U.S. The U.S. is so far behind on this stuff. But there's other regulators that are looking at this same thing that are trying to get Google on this. That are trying to get um, others, other platforms that are other platform monopolies that are favoring their own products on this same issue. Um, India, Amazon, same thing. India is saying, "Hey, if you are a foreign-owned marketplace, you can only do one P or you can do three P. You can't do both." It's the same thesis, just playing itself out in different parts of the world, and 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 playing itself out in different nuance, depending upon what kind of platform businesses it is. Is it a product marketplace? Is it a content platform, et cetera, et cetera. Something at least coming out of the U.S., but again, you know, whatever's coming out of the U.S. is is these days more so coming out of the private enterprise, right? Rumble suing Google than what the regulators are actually doing. There, There have been, we've also covered some bills that are making their way. They're dripping in molasses at the speed they're moving through Congress which could have some real impact on Amazon, but that vote was then delayed, I just heard, into 
uh, September. So we'll keep following these things, but um, a very small step forward in the battle against Google. So it's funny, you know, I, I get these emails, I get these updates, right? Like uh, these different services we subscribe to, they'll have their predictions, right? You know, so predictions for the, the private equity markets, the VC markets, predictions. What you find is that these folks are very good at reporting on the state of now, <laughs> but like the state of the future, they they could do good research, but the predictions, yeah, they went bust. So on this show, we've been calling asset price inflation, real price inflation. We've been calling this stuff for over a year. When the Fed said it was transitory, we had we had the chief economist at Lending Tree on the show. We've had author of uh, this great book called Lords of Easy Money, talking about the Fed and printing money on the show. Right? We've talked about this topic many, many, many times. Talked about how. The markets are just so insanely valued. None of it makes any sense. But now, one of, one of my favorite research sources, the email is, are, are PE predictions revisited? They say, many of our predictions for the U.S. private equity market this year were made amid several tailwinds at the end of 2021. The tailwind means, you know, you got the wind at your back. It's helping you out. Headwind going towards you, slowing you down. Many tailwinds. Uh, needless to say, the global macroeconomic backdrop in 2022 has experienced a sharp return, a sharp turn. Wait for it. Q, Russia, scapegoat, language. Uh, inflation is raging as supply chains adjust to pandemic-related shocks. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine further exacerbates these issues. I mean, really? Really? You're still using the Ukraine thing as a scapegoat? Oh, I thought we weren't in a recession either. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. The fake news and the mind control and the thought police is so strong these days. Oh, man. Significant market volatility has disrupted private equity's previously fervent pace. Thus, many of the predictions we had previously made are not expected to come true in the Changed private equity landscape report that they then hyperlink to. At least they they fact check themselves, you know, because most people would just like slide it under the rug and be like, oh, well, we were always we always predicted that there would be a downturn, and you know, so I give them that credit. And then they recalibrate, you know, number of deals they think are going to happen happen this year, which is down and all this stuff. They did something similar with their. Uh, USVC predictions, which are also, you know, now surprise, surprise, inflated. Who could have seen that one coming? And are now recalibrating those as well. They've got a USVC valuation report. And, you know, the interesting bit about that report is so far, you know, their data through now Q2 of 2022 um, has not seen much of a slowdown at all in angel and seed stage valuations, like we've seen in the later stage valuations. So our prediction here was that, you know, this is all trickle down. Public markets, then late stage, kind of growth VC, then mid stage, then early, all just kind of takes time to trickle down to these earlier stage deals. Um, and that even in Q2, those deals that are closing in Q2 really um, you know, all those term sheets were signed 
in Q1. So, you know, there's a lag here um, for how fast that trickle down manifests itself for the, the deals that are reported on a quarterly basis when those term sheets were issued and, um, and, and so on and so forth. And now you're actually seeing a lot of the, some of these um, like hedge funds like Tiger Global. Now Tiger Global just has gotten burned on late stage VC because they just did ridiculous things. And now to make up for it, they're chasing early stage deals that could, you know, could have a bigger pop. I mean, that's some risky stuff. These are now, those are now multi-billion dollar funds that I don't want to say they're underwater, but they're in a really precarious situation because they deployed so much money at such hyperinflated valuations. And because you're doing it in later stage startups, the timeline to harvest those investments isn't as long as when you're doing early stage investing, right? Where it's like, yeah, seven years at least is that kind of time horizon to really be able, if you're investing in early stage business, like you need to give it a lot of time before it could actually be a unicorn, for example. But if you're investing in that late stage, growth stage tech startup, that time horizon to exit, it's much shorter. I think you're going to start to see some kind of crazy things, these hedge funds that are these VC funds that woof, just, just deployed money. Mm. Um, you're already seeing, and we've covered it, you're already seeing a, a bunch of those staff just, just, just straight up leave the firm um, if they know the fund is completely upside down. But they don't really do a prediction, right? Like if you read the language, it's like, oh, well, is our seed and, and our seed stage deals going to come down uh, in terms of the median valuation and this kind of stuff? And if you read this language, they don't give you a clear answer. I'll give you a clear answer. A thousand percent, they will come down. Just a matter of time for that trickle down to hit. We are really early in the next couple years of, of, of really seeing a lot of these startups um, have to make do and raise capital and build a business in a very different funding environment. What we just experienced when the Fed prints $10 trillion, almost pretty much, and then what happens in the ensuing 18-month period of time, I mean, that's unprecedented stuff. And now the Fed has stopped QE. They're actually now doing QT, tightening. Uh, so they're trying to take money out of the money supply, rising, aggressively rising interest rates. <sighs> Not a good situation to be raising early stage risky dollars. These are the riskiest dollars, angel and seed money. But you do have a little bit of this being distorted. You say, well, why is the lag taking so long? And I think it's because you got some of these later stage VC funds, hedge funds that are chasing these early stage deals and still propping up the valuations at the earlier end of the market. But eventually that will also correct as you've started to see in the later stage. Now, there is some bright news in this. And this was actually a bright spot for me was something I'm very passionate about, which is Advanced manufacturing. How do you, how do we bring manufacturing back to the United States? Um, it's going to be through innovation and technology and digitally driven manufacturing techniques. And so for that part of the VC market, which is what CB Insights calls advanced manufacturing tech, um, that they actually saw basically on still on pace to match 2021 numbers. Uh, we have about $5.4 billion invested 
halfway through 2022, um, which is basically trending the same for where 2021 netted out. So that's phenomenal news. Um, we need that supply chain investment. We need that manufacturing investment. We have to start investing in that stuff. We can't let these macro cycles affect um, and slow down that evolution to bring that back to this country. We're just being gutted of our manufacturing capabilities, and it's horrible. So that's a bright spot. If you're interested, what goes into this advanced manufacturing bucket? CBN says it's free. You can go download it. It's a great. They do a top 50 ranking every year. You can see some of their highlight where you can see these different buckets here. Robots, factory analytics, uh, 3D printing, obviously predictive maintenance tools, factory safety, CAD and simulation software, a bunch of different things. Um, visual inspection software. Uh, so go check these, you know, go check these out. It's a great area. We need to modernize and digitize uh, our manufacturing capabilities in this country if we've got any shot at reinvigorating that part of our economy. Blackstone, not to be confused with BlackRock, which I'm going to talk about in a second, announcing $2 billion plus lending push. I don't know why where this $2 billion number came from, but they have a, literally over $20 billion in their global private credit fund vehicles. Maybe they're allocating $2 billion at least $2 billion of that just to go into tech investing. But they're basically looking for like, I would call pre-IPO and late stage startups doing at least 30 to 50 million in ARR, which is annual recurring revenue. You typically see like a, a SaaS startup, software as a, certif, software as a service has that ARR revenue model. Marketplaces uh, generally have like a take rate. They're taking a, a portion of GMV, gross merchandise volume. So you know, that ARR is very predictable, right? I have subscriptions. You can see people paying on time. It's kind of hard for that money just to dry up and disappear. Maybe you don't grow as fast, but hard for that business to go to zero. But it's still possible. So now with, um, you know, the, the IPO market in just complete disarray, these later stage startups saying, well, you know, I can't exit and go public. If I was to raise a priced round, um, which means to sell equity uh, to investors to raise capital, that's going to be very dilutive because the valuations are, are taking you know, massive haircuts from where they were six, eight months ago. And so what do you want to do? Hey, I want to use source of capital, which is less dilutive if I'm the founder and, and you know, uh, an employee that owns options and, uh, and, and certainly investors that um, already own shares. Enter debt and debt mixed with equity convertible notes whole bit different bunch of different ways to structure this stuff but um you know in 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 the way this stuff works is that debt in the event of a liquidity event the creditors uh you know the the debt holders get paid back first and then the equity holders get paid back after the debt and then there's basically a tiering system of where you sit on the cap table and who gets paid off first, who has more leverage or less leverage. You know, preferred equity is sits above common and all these kinds of tierings. But anyway, so now you got Blackstone putting a bunch of money into this, trying to compete with other players that do this. 
Um, like Silver Lake has been doing this, did this uh, a few times during kind of 2020 COVID panic era, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. Silicon Valley Bank has been doing this for ages. Let's look at an example about how this played out. Oh, remember Airbnb in April of 2020? Airbnb raised a billion dollars of debt and then another billion dollars of debt like two weeks later. Both of those are debt deals. Both of those deals show, again, how this stuff can work. So the second billion dollars that Airbnb raised, they actually paid a lower interest rate than the first billion dollars. The first billion dollars that they raised um, was at 11.5%. Silver Lake, Sixth Street Partners um, put that deal together. And so they got, that was, so that debt was treated in the second position. Um, it wasn't in first position, which is basically you get paid out first in the event of a default. But then they also had an equity component of it. Like typically you get some warrant coverage. Um, Warren Buffett did this with Goldman infamously. Guy killed it on this deal. Uh, Buffett invests $5 billion in Goldman. This was like during peak mania uh, in 08. $5 billion in Goldman Sachs. People were like, oh my God, is Goldman Sachs going to go bankrupt? Oh, Warren Buffett just gave him $5 billion. They're going to be okay. Berkshire bought $5 billion of preferred stock. It has a 10% dividend. It's not debt. Now, this is preferred equity. It has a dividend. Kind of looks like debt, but it's not debt from a cap table standpoint. And then they get warrants where they can buy $5 billion of common stock at $115 a share uh, within five years. Today, Goldman stock is at $350. In 08, the shares went down to as low as like, you know, 70 bucks for, you know, a couple days. But then, yeah, within five years, they got up to $175, $150 a share. That's just free money, right? That's on top of, hey, they they bought equity and they get a 10% return on the equity. Then they said, hey, here's another $5 billion of warrant coverage. And you don't have to, you don't have to buy those warrants at $115 a share unless you're in the money. So if the stock's at $175 or $150, boom, execute. You just made another one, one and a half billion dollars. You can see how these debt equity deals can be very lucrative when done properly. So that was the first deal that Airbnb did. First deal Airbnb did was a billion dollars. It was a hybrid debt equity deal. In the second position, 11.5% interest on the debt. Then two weeks later, they did another billion, which was lower interest, 9%. And that debt was in, in the first position. Silver Lake was in that. Sixth Street was in that. And I think BlackRock might have led that. Um, BlackRock was in it. Fidelity was in it. All these big guys. Alrock did another deal in 2020 with DoorDash, $340 million convertible debt deal in, in 2020. These are great deals. These deals make sense. Um, if you're a later stage startup, yeah, you should absolutely be looking at doing this stuff. And you know the firms that are out in front of us that have the experience, that know how to, how to structure these things properly, deals will do pretty well. The cult master, Adam Newman and wife are back to create another cult, but now not in commercial real estate, this one in residential real estate. Okay, here we go. Cult life. I mean, that's really what this guy does. Um, he is able to build this fervor around what he is doing to then, it's actually perfect for 2022, right? 
we live in an upside down world where, you know, it's just alternate reality. Something is clearly true, recession. And then I'm told, well, no, we're not in a recession because that isn't technically the definition. Maybe that's Adam Newman's thing, right? Maybe that's why he got $325 million valued over a billion dollars. And the thing does not exist. It's going to launch next year, not this year. And they're going to have 3,000 apartment units in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Atlanta, and Nashville. I'm sure there's going to be some cult antics and some tech hype. I'm kind of, ah, come on, Andreessen, really? And then they defended the guy and they said, yeah. Andreessen Horowitz said in a blog post, that Newman's efforts to redesign the office experience at WeWork are, quote, often underappreciated, and that the firm loves seeing repeat founders build on past successes by growing from lessons learned. Do you think you're enabling his growth to fund him a pre-launch round with hundreds of millions of dollars and to give him a unicorn valuation before he's launched his business? Do you think he's learned his lesson? Because if that was me, I don't need to learn anything. There's no lesson to be learned here, Andreessen. I should actually just keep doing what I'm really good at doing, which seems like that's what he's doing, which is now in real estate with some cult stuff. It's called flow.life, live life in flow. And you can submit a note to get more information. I actually don't know if I even see this on a pitch book. Here it is, Flo. Operator of a real estate startup intended to deliver home ownership services. The company provides rental housing experience and services to outside developers, enabling them to decrease their living costs. They got $350 million from one investor named Andreessen Horowitz. Aye. Yay, yay. Benchmark, I'm sure Benchmark is like, okay, thank you. Yes. Have fun, Andreessen. Have fun. Like I read the descriptions and it says they're going to do like home rental services, home ownership services and provide stuff with developers and this kind of stuff. But to me, the only way that Andreessen would give him $350 million is because it's being secured by real hard assets, right? So to me, they're kind of looking at this and saying, yeah, it seems like a crazy number, but you're going to use a large majority of this money to buy or invest in real estate. So their downside has to be hedged, right? It's not just purely technology. By the way, and I don't think that's Adam's strong suit. He's not a tech founder. That was the whole thing with WeWork. The guy knows real estate. Actually, you go on PitchBook, it says, flow, parentheses, real estate. I don't think it's a tech. I think it's a, I think this is a real estate business. Um, and that then makes it more palatable for how you could get comfortable putting $350 million into this because there actually is somewhat of a real asset that you could reclaim if worst case scenario happens. What's weird though is then, okay, so if it is a real estate business with some kind of tech story to it, is that really the remit? Is that, is that really what Andreessen is? Like they're a real estate investor now? Is there a VC in, in real estate? I don't know. There's just very, a lot of conflicting things. You have no, you've limited of no information on what this thing is, but um, I'm not buying into the hype. Never bought into the hype. The first merry-go-round. Don't know why you're buying into the hype. The second merry-go-round. I don't know. That's it for us in Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.